This is Eitan Weinstein. And I'm Naor Menninger. And you're listening to Two Nice Jewish Boys. This podcast is made in collaboration with The Jewish Journal. Check them out at jewishjournal.com. Also in collaboration with Arutz Sheva, israelnationalnews.com. If you'd like to support the podcast, visit 2njb.com slash donate. Mordecai Chertoff came to Palestine in 1947 as a 25-year-old determined to make his contribution to the emerging Jewish state. Between 1947 and 1949, he was variously local news editor, foreign news editor, and war correspondent for the Palestine Post, soldier in the Haganah, and resident of Jerusalem. In a series of vivid and often moving letters to his family back in the United States, Mordecai described the news of the UN vote for partition, the ongoing battles along the dangerous Jerusalem-Tel Aviv highway, and the attempts to break the siege of Jerusalem, the bombing of the Palestine Post, the declaration of the State of Israel, and inevitably, the loss of friends. These letters have been annotated and contextualized in the book Palestine Posts, an Eyewitness Account of the Birth of Israel by Mordecai's son, Daniel Chertoff. Daniel worked in the investment industry and as a senior executive in a large Israeli high-tech company. Before discovering his father's letters, he was happily writing his doctoral dissertation in English literature at the Hebrew University. Daniel is an associate editor at Partial Answers, and he joins us today on the podcast to talk about his new book, about his father, and about the founding of the State of Israel. Thank you so much for joining Hello. us. Hi, guys. So happy to be here. So how are you? Wonderful. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you for joining us. Who, who was your father? Wow, there's a big question, very philosophical question. I thought I knew until I read the letters. Um, we had uh, an okay relationship like many sons and fathers, but I think that I never really understood him until after I read his letters, and I had the opportunity to get to know him as a 25-year-old. You know, it's hard for young people to think of their parents as young. And there's a character in a book that I like very much who says, gee, who wouldn't want to meet their parents before they became their parents? So the opportunity... It's a synopsis for Back to the Future, essentially, right? Exactly. Just be exactly. careful not to... to yeah, set the date right. with your mother. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway. Oedipus, Schmedipus. Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know... Um, I knew that my father had been in Israel during this time, that he had been a journalist with the Palestine Post and had been in the Haganah, and I grew up with his stories. And, you know, as a teenager, I was enthralled by them, and as a young adult, I got tired of them. Still, I wanted to be supportive, and I encouraged him to write his memoirs. And uh, he wrote his memoirs. I edited them and, and uh, produced them, but he never told me he had letters. Um, the memoirs were very anecdotal and a little bit annoying, and it was all stuff I had heard before. But after he died, I was going through his papers, and suddenly I discover 400 letters, especially 120 that he wrote to his parents who were living in the U.S., and his brother and sister also living in the U.S., describing his life in Israel in 1947, 1948, and inevitably describing the events 
of Israel's War of Independence as they were occurring. Maybe he forgot about them? You know, um, I love that question because in my heart of hearts, I believe that he forgot about them. But there's a little part of me that likes to think that he strategically didn't tell me so that I would find them and have to deal with them and figure out what to do with them and see how I would allow them to influence me, to impact me. Because my initial, uh, my, my initial plan was simply to scan them for my kids, just in case they were interested. But then I started to read them. And I thought, oh, he's making reference to so-and-so. My kids won't know who that is. I better write it down. So I started to kind of slowly annotate. Um, and before I knew it, I had 900 footnotes. And I discovered also that I needed to explore some of the events that he was referring to. For example, he mentions the sergeant's affair. Now, the sergeant's affair, to scholars of the war, we know that the Irgun had um, members who were going to be executed by the British. Irgun was Begin's underground. Exactly. More Army. radical than the mainstream. Yeah. Right. So the, uh, in order to prevent their men from being executed, they kidnapped two sergeants and they threatened to execute them if their men were executed. Their men were executed and the Irgun killed these two sergeants. So my father wrote extensively about it, but he makes many references like that to events that were very important during the war, but which people have kind of forgotten about. Does it say who killed Orlazarov or that's... No, okay. no. Uh, I think that was actually a little earlier. Early that yeah. letter away. Yeah. <laughs> so it's amazing because today you wouldn't have this kind of treasure. I mean, maybe you would, but it's much more well, rare because yeah, you'd everybody have you'd have WhatsApp. to you'd have to siphon through thirteen thousand WhatsApp <laughs> messages. And you, absolutely. You know, um, I found also letters between my grandparents that were written in the thirties, and to hold these letters you know, on creamy paper written with a fountain pen, you know, and realize that people, and the letters are 10 pages long. And you think that people would retire for an evening, sit down and plan to spend three hours writing a letter. And you didn't have a word processor. You couldn't, oh, change my mind. I'll, I'll delete that and I'll, mm -hmm. you know, I'll, I'll, they had to think in sentences and paragraphs. And also they had to write in such a way that, the letter would have a shelf life for a long time because it would take six weeks to arrive. The recipient would read it 20 times and then take their time responding and then tie up the letters with a ribbon and save them. And that's what I found. I found these letters uh, as if they were uh, written, uh, saved, uh, tied up with a ribbon and saved. To whom? Were there, yeah, go ahead. To whom were these letters and what was their purpose? The letters were written in general to his family, his mother and father in Brooklyn, his sister living in Cleveland and married. He was born in America? He was born in America. But his family was intensively Zionist. Mm -hmm. His father had escaped Russia the end of the 20th century. Uh, oh, no, so end of the 19th century. Uh, made it to the US. He was um, a Talmud scholar and an Orthodox rabbi. Um, and the whole family was completely Israel-oriented, which wasn't so common among American Jews uh, in New York during that period, because many of them were grateful to be in America 
and were ambivalent about the creation of a Jewish state. But his family was unambig uh, unambivalent. They loved Israel. They loved Palestine. And my father was determined to go at the earliest opportunity, and that was 1947 when he mm -hmm. was 25. And he went hoping to get a job at the Palestine Post. And he knew that important things were going to happen, and he felt that he needed to be there and to participate and contribute. So were there, I mean, were there, was there any pieces of information in these letters that you weren't aware of, things about your father that you weren't aware of? Because you said you had previously written or edited a memoir of his. Hey, Eitan, what a great question. Yes. Um, <laughs> first of all, on many levels. Um, uh, Spoiler alert, he liked women. <laughs> <laughs> How did you know that? <laughs> yes, I discovered, for example, that my father proposed to a woman, not my mother. Wow. And while he was waiting for her response, he was, as they used to say, keeping company with another woman. On Tinder. And, and had, his eyes, <laughs> had his eyes on a third. But, okay, but then so again, a ladies' man. As, as you said, um, you know, they were young. They were living in a war. Uh -huh. No one knew if the next bullet had their name on it. You know, uh, they were far away from home. He was hedging his bets. So uh, seeing my father as a young man... Sowing his wild oats was very interesting. Struggling with questions of what will I be when I grow up? What, what will my career be? I've been trained as a rabbi. Do I want to be a rabbi? But I'm a journalist and I'm a humorist. I write a lot of, he, he wrote lovely humorous sketches. So he was trying... All to his family? Well, uh, no, humorous sketches and things he wrote, for example, in college. And he... And you he, found it with the letters? yes. And the and the about the women he wrote about them to the family, or you found letters from the women. Both, I found. It's weird if he were to write his well, no, family I mean, about all the women. If he proposed, no, but he then he said, "I propose, but there's this girl and this girl." No, but That's I, a bit that, weird. It's an important question because his family knew about Hadassah Frisch because her father was Daniel Frisch, the head of the Zionist Organization of America. Yeah. They would have loved for my father to marry her. Yeah, she wasn't interested. But in the meantime, he also, the woman he was uh, intimately involved with, the family did not approve of. And in there, there are letters from my grandparents saying, you said you weren't with her anymore, but we're hearing from people that you are with her. We're very upset. We're disappointed. It's all in English, the letters? Mo most of the letters are in English. However, my father and my grandfather corresponded only in Hebrew to practice in beaut no beautiful Hebrew. They uh -huh. both had beautiful Hebrew, and because they were so educated in Limudei Kodesh, all of their letters are filled with biblical allusions and Talmudic allusions. And when they're very emotional, when there's something really that touches them, they can only express it with such a reference. So, for example, his letter describing the vote for partition, you know, Kaftet November, the 29th of November is filled with rabbinic allusions, liturgical allusions. He wrote it in Hebrew, four pages in a single sitting. He said, I, I, I can't begin to express myself in English. This is such a momentous event. It has to be described in Hebrew. Uh, the partition that you mentioned, uh, eventually, as we all know, most of us know, leads to uh, you know, a war, one of the- uh, A war? One of the worst wars that Israel, I mean, 
not the worst. Only but one five of the worst, armies against five hundred. One of the worst wars as we've seen, and and it it probably you know was not an easy experience for his father. Can you tell us about some of the experiences that he uh, conveyed in the letters? Yeah, um, you're you're very right. Um, the the vote for partition was the start of the first part of the war, the civil war. Mm-hmm. And people skip that. They go right to Ben-Gurion's Declaration of the State on November 14th, 48. But between November 29th and, no- and May 14th, there was a civil war between the Jews and the Arabs who lived in Palestine. The Arabs were helped by Arab irregulars from Iraq and other places. Now, what they did was to um, lay siege to Jerusalem. They cut off the road and Jerusalem was starving. Um, you know, it was incredible. In January of 1948, there were 30 trucks a day coming up to Jerusalem to supply the city. Three months later, there were none. The radios, the radio stations in Jerusalem were broadcasting recipes for how to make food out of weeds. Chubeza, uh, uh, right? Mallow. Um, it's pretty tasty. I've heard. Yeah. Mallow cro- croquettes. Um, and my father tells a story. This third woman that he had his eyes on had a boyfriend who was a member of Kibbutz Malea Hamisha. She got to his kibbutz uh, on a Sunday. They got onto a convoy to go north to Jerusalem. The convoy was attacked. He threw himself on top of her, saved her life. He was killed. Um, and my father writes a lot about the impact, wh- what that meant. This, the boy who, who, uh, who was killed was the sole survivor of his family from Poland. His entire family had been wiped out in the Holocaust. He f- makes it to Israel, immediately founds this kibbutz with some other people, is in the army, and he's, he's killed in Israel, the last member of his family. And one interesting anecdote, the woman, Anne, eventually married, and they had a son named Roy, Roy Schenkar. And I met with Roy, and I said, Roy, tell me about, uh, about the attack. And he said, I can't, because I don't know anything about it. I know there was an attack, but she refused to talk about it and to give me any details. So I said, well, you know, my father wrote a very detailed description. Would you like to hear it? And I read it to him, and we sat in a cafe in Tel Aviv just crying. And then he told me that his mother had been the secretary of Chaim Yasky. Yasky had been the head of Hadassah Hospital. And he was a very prominent ophthalmologist. And as you may remember, there were weekly convoys going between the hospital and Jerusalem. One day the convoy was attacked. Mm-hmm. 81 Jewish doctors and medical personnel were murdered, including Dr. Yasky. Mm-hmm. And Roy told me that his mother was supposed to accompany Dr. Yasky but he had asked her, stay behind. There's paperwork that you need to finish. You know, you'll come next time. Gave her a break. Gave her a break and uh-huh. saved her life. You know, I think it's amazing. I, I don't think um, many people have the opportunity to discover the history of their of their family, of their fathers, in the way that you did. I think that it's often kind of, uh, you know, a lot of, like you mentioned, this Roy Shenker guy. You know, a lot of the times the history of our family is kind of clouded in this. Well, I know the basic story, but I'm not, you know, I don't know the details. And it's amazing that you had the opportunity to kind of delve into your father's, both while he was alive and after his passing. 
Absolutely. And the thing is, to be reading about my father's personal life and, and uh, reading about him as a young man, interwoven with seminal events in Jewish history, is an incredible schut. I mean, what a, what a mm -hmm. privilege. I mean, so for example, my father was in the building when the Palestine Post was bombed on February 1st. He writes in a, a very, very detailed account, probably the most detailed account in existence. And one of the things he describes is pulling Rubby out of the building, his favorite linotype operator. And he's terrified Rubby's going to die, Rubby will lose his sight. I know Rubby's three beautiful children. I see them running together in Rechavia on Shabbat afternoons. And then he writes later, uh, Rubby will probably live, but he'll be blind. Uh, Rubby didn't live. Eventually, he did succumb. And um, I found his youngest child, uh, David Naveau, a very successful high-tech Israeli uh, defense and technology uh, executive. I said, David, tell me about the bombing. Uh, and he said, I, I can't. I don't know that much about it. I only know he was in the building, and eventually he was killed. I said, well, David, let me share with you my father's detailed account. So imagine for David, he never met his father. He was too young when his father died. There's this huge gap in his life. He's a little bit obsessed with it, although he's very successful. He's very anxious to learn as much as he can. Suddenly, a stranger shows up with an, a detailed eyewitness account written by someone who loved his father and pulled him out of the wreckage and probably bought him a year of life. So not only am I moved by the letters that I found, but I found many, many people like David Naveau and Roy Shankar and others who know, knew vaguely their parents' stories but didn't have the details. You actively looked for these people who... Oh, yeah. Because you realized... I wanted to know what happened. Anne Strauss, her boyfriend, you know, throws himself on top of her, saves her life. Mm -hmm. What happened to Anne Strauss? She was a close friend of my father's. Well, she remarried. She had a son. Fine. I needed to find them. Tell me about it. How difficult was it to find? I mean, do you, did you know these people prior no, or did you have to find them? So no. how, how did you go about them? No, like finding I, Anne Strauss, for example. Anne Strauss... Um, uh, you know, I don't remember exactly how I found Anne Strauss. My father stayed in touch with her, and they had a reunion in 2006. And I, know that I knew that she remarried. But let me mm -hmm. tell you a better one that was hard to find. Mm -hmm. The woman that my father was sleeping with, who his family didn't approve of, we only had a nickname, Kepi. Who's, wow. who's Kepi? Who's <laughs> Kepi? So I start looking, and then I find somewhere a last name. I'm not going to say her last name. And I'm looking, and I'm looking, I'm looking, and uh, weeks, I'm looking for who's Kepi. I can't find it. I come out from my office, you know, I, I plunk myself down in the living room, and I, I complain to my wife, I can't find her. She says, have a cup of tea, then go back into your room, and don't come out until you find the family. <laughs> I found their immigration records, and I found an obituary for Kepi's brother, so I called the descendants, and that opened up everything to me. Um, and then at some point, I said, you know, I'd like to meet Kepi's children. And then I get a, a, an email from Kepi's daughter. Who are you? What do you want? And why are you stalking my family? I write back. I understand your anxiety. Let me tell you what I'm doing. She says, oh, when can you talk? How about now? <laughs> I had a dozen letters 
that her mother had written to my father. And she is now one of my dearest friends. We see each other often. I visit her in Boston. And again, she knew very little. Her mother had been a, a reporter, a stringer for one of the wire services. And she was deeply involved with my father. And she knew everyone in Palestine in 47, and then went back to finish uh, university. But there's the second generation, me, this woman, Roy, David, mm-hmm. and uh, at this stage in our lives, we're very anxious to hear about our parents. And now you've put it down so that your children and generations to come can read about it. Um, so tell us a bit about your, your father was a war correspondent for the Palestine Post. Was he, did he join before the war, the Palestine Post? Did he start working? Yes. Start working for them? Yes. Um, as soon as he arrived in Israel mm-hmm. in February of 47, he had some letter of introduction and was immediately hired to be the local news reporter. Within two days, the foreign news editor quit, and suddenly he was the foreign news editor. Mm. And he had to learn very quickly, and many of his early letters describe his anxiety and the stress of having to quickly master the, uh, uh, the job. And then what happened is, um, later, he wrote an article about the Palmach taking Shartzion, the Zion Gate, of old of Jerusalem, and it was very laudatory. It was very positive. So the Haganah adopts him, and they adopt also the Haaretz reporter, a guy named Azaria Rappaport, a very well-known Israeli character. So he and my father were among the first journalists ever to be embedded with a combat unit. So he was embedded with the Haganah, with the Palmach, and they took him everywhere. And at one point, he says, you know... Um, The 27-year-old commander of the Jerusalem district, Isaac Robin, gave me a letter that would allow me to accompany the Palmach as they were discovering and building the Burma Road. Wow. So so he turned himself into a war correspondent, and um, he did it kind of through the back door. He had just written a feature article about one exploit. Palmach said, come here with us. Mm-hmm. And the next thing he knew, he was... Uh, Did he you was find anything in the letters about the war that we don't know about? Um, there are a few times when he writes, um, by the time you get this letter, it will no longer be confidential. Uh, uh, and here's what happened. Mm-hmm. But it, it's not anything that we don't know about now. Mm-hmm. I, I, I think it's kind of relevant to, to today, but even maybe it probably is more exaggerated at that you know, time in, in history. But making Aliyah at the age of 25 in 1947 to the state of Israel, I mean, I guess it was before the UN partition uh, plan, so maybe things weren't as, you know, as crazy. But his family must have been... I mean, were they elated? Because you mentioned that they were Zionists, but at the same time, they must have been distraught kind of with worries. And They, they were worried, but um, there were many young Americans there. And my father writes a lot about, um, dear mom and dad, thank you for not pressuring me to come back. Many other parents are pressuring their kids to come back. Mm-hmm. He says, I can't. I've made Aliyah, and I'm in the Haganah. I can't just pick up and leave, even if I wanted to, but I would never consider leaving. Mm-hmm. But let me tell you how Zionist they were. When my father was 13, his mother, who was then, I think, 41, said she had to go to Palestine. And in 1935, she took my father and his two siblings for the academic year to Palestine, 1935 to 1936, to spend the year. She said, I have to see the land. 
And I have the correspondence between her and my grandfather describing life in Palestine in 1935 and 1936. They were all intensively Zionist, but in the end, it was only my father who made Aliyah, and then he went back. He only returned to Israel for the last six years of his life. I brought him back. Mm. So they were intensively Zionist, but in the end, they didn't come. So you ended up actually uh, uh, living in the States, growing up in the States? Yeah, I was born in the States, mm -hmm. but I grew up with stories, ah, oh, we're going to go back. Mm -hmm. Pretty ironic in the end of the day. That yeah. he was one of the, yeah. the part of the generation that founded this state and right, and then now, moved back. Um, for this, it feels like this generation is full of contradictions. I think that's sense. true. Um, the last chapter of my book is all about why did he go back? What happened? And I I try to understand it. Um, but I grew up really with this value. And in fact, um, on our first date, my wife and I said to each other, are you Aliyah-oriented? Because if not, we'll have a pleasant evening, but it'll only be one. Mm -hmm. She was also Aliyah-oriented. And um, after 11 years, we made Aliyah in our mid-30s. Our children were born in the States, but they were raised here. They're completely Israeli. They, they all live here. My grandchildren are all here. So even if my father didn't remain, uh, you know, he, he made his point. What conclusions did you come to? Why do you think he, or what are some of the ideas of why he left? I think that because my grandfather was a rabbi and my uncle was a rabbi, I think my father felt that it would, was inevitable that he also would end up being a rabbi. It was unfortunate because he wasn't great at it and he didn't love it, he, but he was a good writer. Mm -hmm. um, I think the other, that's one one theory. The other theory is, Imagine how romantic it was during the war. You're 25 years old. There's nothing but young people around. You have the threat of death, and everybody is very free and living for the moment and struggling for this incredible ideal. It comes into being, and now you have to settle down to the really hard work of actually building a country. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure he was as interested in actually the day-to-day and he was worried about certain tendencies that Israel had, like socialism, censorship. He, w he was worried. I think there's also, I mean, his family was living back in the States. And that seems to be a, a common trend to me, that when the family stays, I mean, I made Aliyah before my parents, mm -hmm. but eventually they made their way back. And I saw most of my friends that were with me here in Israel, in the military, uh, whose parents stayed in the States ended up kind of, they were the ones to kind of fall off and to go back. I think that's a huge, uh, to, especially since here in Israel, family is such a central part of the yeah. culture. You look around. Friday and, night, everybody's yeah. going to their parents. And you're and at home. And, you in know. Florentine. And, yeah. And parents depend on grandparents to take the kids to Ghana and to help. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You're absolutely right. And I'll tell you, the other thing is when we made Aliyah 32 years ago, Phone calls were a fortune. Yeah. Now we have, you know, free Skyping and WhatsApp. And, you know, uh, my children were on Shlichut for a while. We Skyped with them every night. Mm -hmm. Nice. So d the letters towards the end of the war uh, must have been kind of uh, interesting to his, his elation at the foundation of the state and uh, winning no, of the, the war. No, the war started after. 
No, no. No, at the, I, towards the end, I'm saying in 1940, his letters from 1949, once you know right. the war was won and the state was founded. Right. right. What happens is there definitely was a falling off. You can feel a little bit of a decrease in energy. And he said, look, uh, you know, there was a rousing letter that he wrote for the partition plan, you know, for the vote, uh, the UN vote. But by the time Ben-Gurion declared the state, Jerusalem had been at war for nine months. They were mm -hmm. starving. There was no rousing celebrations. You know, as you said, they were invaded by five countries. I mean, everybody was, you know, in, in deep trouble. And that was, you know, that was the declaration. But de facto, the state, after the war was won, that's sort of kind of, you yeah. know, the de facto we're, founding. We're going to stick around. Because that's kind of facts on the ground. So at that point, the letters must have been full of, you know. The, the letters beginning in... Um, September, August 48, are anticlimactic. Really? Um, because by then also, it was clear that Israel was going to win. And mm -hmm. We were not going to be pushed back, and we were going to gain more land. But until the war didn't actually end until the spring of 49. So it kind of dragged on for a while. We got into a, a real strain with England. Mm -hmm. uh, England threatened to uh, attack Israel at one point. Um, but... Um, it was clear. Bastards. <laughs> he writes a lot about the English. Really? Uh, very, very critical of the English. People seem to forget how cruel, cruel, and yeah, and hateful they were. Um, you know, the thing that's hard to believe, hard to understand, is that England, after World War II, was on the verge of bankruptcy. There was there was rationing of, of food in England until the early fifties. Still. They supported 150,000 soldiers in Palestine who were mostly occupied with keeping Jewish refugees out. Mm -hmm. Can you imagine? I mean, they did nothing to implement partition. They did nothing to protect Jews. Uh, I, I'm overstating. That's, a little, that's unfair. They, they did some. But still, most of their resources were devoted to patrolling the coast and preventing refugees yeah. from coming in. Yeah, and the blood of... Uh I, I think some of the blood of, of Holocaust deaths is on their hands because they wouldn't let people come. Exactly right. Um, I want to say something else. Um, you know, reading the history is interesting, but reading a contemporaneous account on a day-by-day -day basis of what becomes history is a whole different experience. It is experiential. You know, it's like you're living it. Mm -hmm. And uh, you don't know how it's going to come out. So um, it's a different kind of experience. And exactly that, the refugees is a good example. Um, the exodus. Uh, we, write, we read about it now, how it left France, came to Israel, was boarded by the British, attacked, people were killed. They tried to go back to France. France wouldn't take them. They ended up going to Hamburg. Now, that... that um, occurred over a very long period of time. You know, it's one thing to read the summary of it later. It's another thing to imagine being a refugee who has survived Auschwitz and is now on their way to Palestine only to be locked in a barbed wire cage, kept on board ship, and ultimately sent to Hamburg and put in another camp. Okay, there weren't crematoria, but it was horribly reminiscent of what they had just escaped. So back to the letters, I, I got to ask one more question about them. What was like the one letter that you remained 
in awe and shocked after reading and it's like it's tended it was one particular stood out. yeah stood out than the, the other ones um there are quite a number that uh i think are very powerful but i don't think there's any question that his four-page hebrew description of the un vote and the reaction in jerusalem to the to the vote I mean, I've read the letter 20 times, and I share excerpts in my presentations to communities. I cannot get through it without crying. I mean, just thinking about it is, it's so emotional. Because he also, he writes about it in, in biblical terms, you know. Uh, you know, he begins, Lezion uh, Goel. You know, all of these invocations of, of our long heritage. He saw the reconstitution of the Jewish state in the great sweep of Jewish history. And he believed from the moment he arrived that the state would come into being. He had no question. He had infinite love for the Haganah and faith in their abilities. And he had no doubts. And then when, when the vote occurred... You know, and he describes, you know, singing in the street and people delirious with joy. And it's just, it's unbelievable. You can participate. You can feel it. Mm -hmm. So I, I love that letter. And uh, I think there's no better uh, mark advertisement for the book than that. So I tell, think tell the idea of, uh, yeah. of reading this, like as you described it, experientially, yeah. uh, really, I mean... You know, yeah. I, 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 I want to read it now. <laughs> I, what I did was I took his letters. Yeah. I built the, the historical context around it so you know what he's talking about. I put enough of a framework so that you get an idea of the flow of the war. Mm -hmm. There's all the personal stuff. You'll, you'll read all about um, Hadassah Frisch and Kepi and Anne Strauss and, and his friends. Um, and historical personages who, at the time, were not so well known. My father was very close with Moshe Sharet. Mm -hmm. They were close friends. And he describes uh, conversations with Sharet and others. The second prime minister. Of yeah. Second prime Israel. minister, yeah. yeah. And he was, in essence, the foreign, the foreign minister for mm -hmm. the new state. And, of course, there's the father-son aspect. You know, what's it, how do I feel about finding my father's letters and, you know, confronting him as a young man and it changes completely the way I'm going to remember him. Mm -hmm. I feel like reading it in Hebrew though. Right? You know, my wife keeps saying it has to come out in Hebrew. Yeah, because you're describing the Hebrew letters and you know, I feel like if I read it in English so all the Hebrew out. letters are yeah. translated to English. You know, um, when he describes the vote in the UN, he says that's the way the high priest counted in the Yom Kippur service. You know, th only in Hebrew do you get all of the allusions. Mm -hmm. He mentions, for example, uh, you know, uh, Jerusalem was a desolate city. It's a reference to Kohelet. It's the way Kohelet begins. Mm -hmm. So uh, I, I'm hoping that there'll be uh, an opportunity and a demand for it to be in Hebrew. And when you when these these notes are are annotated in the book, meaning like when you when he references Kohelet in that yes. way, then you point it out. Yes. So you yes. get the full weight of his writing. I'm I'm really surprised. <clears throat> 
by um, the people keep telling me how much they love the footnotes. And one friend told me, when I see there's a footnote, I test myself. Do I know what the footnote is going to say? <laughs> but I translate Yiddish and Hebrew into English. I explain what the historical reference is. Um, I give biographies uh, because I, I track down everyone and everything. Mm-hmm. And how, how much of like, you know, writing the book was... Um, how much of res- how much research did it require as opposed to how much was kind of just from g- your general knowledge beforehand? How long did it take? It took me four years. Oh, and wow. I, I did it by myself. I didn't, um, I, I didn't get any kind of research help from anyone. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, I think that I, I'm embarrassed to say that it turns out that I knew relatively little about the war. When mm-hmm. I started, I didn't have good general knowledge. I read many history books. Um, I read many secondary sources. I, med- I read many primary sources. One of my favorite primary sources was I decided I should read the Palestine Post for every day that my father was there because he helped put it out. And I felt like I was standing next to him in the newsroom, you know, deciding what articles should go where. So I learned the history on a daily basis as well as from the historian side. So you read some 500, I mean, how long was he there? Uh, well, I'm, I read um, basically a year and a half's worth wow. of every day. And as historians say, newspaper accounts is the first draft of history. So I read the first draft, I read the last draft, and then I let my father tell his contemporaneous account. So you told us the book wow. is doing extremely well. Where can people get it? It's doing well. It's available on Amazon, both in softcover and uh, in Kindle. Um, Stymaskis has it. Uh, there's some other local bookstores that have it. Um, it's in English, unfortunately, not in, not in Hebrew. Um, also, I have a website, palestineposts.com. Posts in plural, right? Yes, it's okay. kind of a pun. You know, it's mm-hmm. ambiguous. Um, and I'm posting additional information. For example, I learned more details about my father's military, uh, exact military uh, record. So I'm adding things like that. And I'm also being contacted by people who know people who are mentioned or who can fill in details. So there'll be some updates. Mm-hmm. Maybe there'll be a second edition at some point. I don't know. I hope so. Cool. Wow, incredible. And, and you're on social media? Uh, I have, there's a Facebook page and the website, um, and uh, my publicist posts quite a bit. Okay. So um, there are more products that I would like to, my father was one of the first people to walk along the Burma Road. The Burma Road is one of the most unbelievable stories. It's how, how finally the siege of Jerusalem was broken. People have heard Burma Road. They don't know what it means, though. Mm -hmm. Mickey Marcus was involved. Uh, you know, C- Colonel Mickey Marcus Stone from the United States, the f- one of Israel's first generals. He was accidentally killed. He was mistaken as an intruder, and he was killed. And there are amazing stories about him. And this is all part of the story. And my father writes a, an incredible article describing being one of the first to go along the Burma Road. That That's in the book. But I'd like to write more about it. Wow. Amazing. Okay. So, guys, check it out. It, Palestine Posts, an eyewitness account of the birth of Israel by Daniel S. Chertoff. You can find it on Amazon. On, and on the you website. You can buy a digital copy. So, check it out. And Stimatsky's, yeah. And Stimatsky. Yeah. Thank you thank really you so, much. so much. That guys, was incredible. Thank you. Really moving. This is really fun. I, great questions, and I appreciate this opportunity. Before thank we you. go, 
We have a collaboration with the Jewish Journal. They're at jewishjournal.com. They have um, articles, podcasts. David Tweese's podcast. Oh, kind of like the Rosner's podcast. Today's Palestine Post. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, highly recommended, so do check them out. Also, I don't know if they have any war correspondence, though. Well, I don't think so. Well, maybe L.A. is kind of a war in and of itself. but uh, It's a good journal. I read it. Yeah. So Jerusalem, uh, Jewish Journal, yeah. guys, check them also, out, jewishjournal.com. And we also have a collaboration with uh, Arut Sheva, which is at uh, israelnationalnews.com. They also have great content, yep. um, a Facebook page, mm-hmm. check them out. Uh, we're on uh, their Facebook page live sometimes. So again, israelnationalnews.com. We accept donations, so please help us out. Go to twingb.com slash donate and throw some shekels at our direction. And finally, we are on YouTube, guys, so please check it out check out our channel on youtube yes because we post we're also on instagram we're on twitter we're on facebook we're everywhere everywhere Everywhere. (laughs) all right thank you so much thank you so much thank you good luck with the book thank you bye Bye. guys